Hi, welcome to the first HMP Market Access Insights podcast for the 2023 year. Today, we're going to take another step forward to help you understand what's most important in prioritizing your plans for 2023 uh, to ensure your brand and your oncology portfolio success. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the value-based care special topic report, which we released late in December. We look forward to sharing any further comments or questions you may have in the future on this. First, let me introduce my colleague, Chris Vandenberg. Chris was the uh, co-author of the report, so Chris will be joining us today to discuss the key findings in the report. And there are many. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Um, So last year, we ended up with uh, 12 deliverables, the last one being on value-based care, with some focus in oncology specifically. And the key highlights, if I'm just going to blow this up for people who only stay on for a few minutes, the key highlights are things like there's lots of media coverage about value-based care, all the national payers and vertical payers are reporting decently high numbers. However, most of value-based care activity is in the government-driven primary care programs. There is activity among private payers in uh, value-based care, but it too is almost entirely in primary care. And it's always, almost always, lower risk types of value-based care. There's very little value-based care uh, activity among private payers in oncology. We'll get into that. In general, it's important to understand that value-based care is quite difficult to pull off, especially challenging when deciding on relevant and meaningful clinical goals like in oncology. And we had a nice quote from one of our uh, respondents saying, you know, value-based care programs, again, are complicated and arduous. Once we figure out what percent reduction in cost of care they create, we can just go ahead and contract for that percent. Now, I'm not sure that that's true, but you get the idea of what the thought is like out there. Yeah. I think key thing there to note is value-based care means is defined differently according to who you speak to. We are using the clear definition here that value-based care means some sort of a transference of um, downside risk to a provider or potentially a financially significant upside for performance to a provider. So money has to change hands one way or another for it to be value-based care with us. We know from years of of experience that quality alone is insufficient to stimulate change. Right, and that's even despite the numerous programs that are out there uh, to try to create that change. uh, We're not so sure that it's happening, especially in uh, oncology anyway. Um, And finally, in a nutshell, in value-based care, pay for performance and lower WAC prices could potentially become more important than rebates. So we need to really continue to monitor and understand this whole world of value-based care, especially in oncology. So let's set the stage. In previous research that we've done as Market Access Insights as part of HMP Global and prior as Proximity Health, we've seen that uh, oncology providers naturally prioritize patient care. They are really driven to do as best they can for their patient. However, they also show very little attention to total treatment costs as we ask the question, which equates to their overall attention to societal costs, costs to the system, if you will. And then in the middle, practice economics, things like payer reimbursement, margin on drug. And so those three elements are actually very important in value-based care too. Again, clinical outcomes, total cost of care, cost of society, and practice economics because those are what value-based care target. 
the relative lack of concern about total treatment costs does reflect, it seems like, the oncologist's traditional focus on doing the best care for an individual patient, which makes sense. Again, they're trying to give really great care to their patients. However, rather than considering impacts on the total healthcare system. Yeah, so I think it's important to note the, the key takeaway here is that, frankly, doctors, as I just mentioned, don't necessarily change just based upon an easy you know, agreement upon improving quality. So we'd actually shown a slide earlier uh, as a, an output from our work that looked at what really drives oncologists in terms of selecting a cancer treatment. And what we saw was in the bruiser and cruiser um, segments of community oncologists anyway, efficacy and safety are important. Those are more than half of the weight that the doctor assigns to their choice. In the rest of the market though, the decliner section of the market as we call it, nearly all of that choice is really based upon safety and efficacy, with efficacy being the strongest and most important attribute that the doctors are looking at. So what's important here is to start to switch the doctor's priority around, all right? So right now we know safety and efficacy are the most important, that's good. That's across all segments, that's probably as it should be. But when the doctors then look at the secondary uh, priorities, what you frequently see is they're looking at their own financial practicalities. So they're looking at things like financial margin, they're looking at things like patients' out-of-pocket costs, but really business-type issues there. What they're not looking at, or they're very assigning very low weight to, is in fact total cost of care. So if you are a risk holder, you're let's say an insurance company or an employer, and you're paying based upon total cost of care, that is a metric that you would like the doctors to pay attention to. What value-based care, at its most rudimentary definition, really seeks to align is the doctor's prioritization of total cost of care to someplace higher on the list so that it begins to match up a little bit with the ultimate payer's priorities. And that matches exactly what we heard from everybody we interviewed last year for this project in terms of the payer respondents saying that, of course, cost is paramount for them. I mean, that's their entire exist, uh, purpose for, for life as a payer is to manage the costs while supporting quality and patient outcomes. And we saw that ranked exactly that way in our conversations with patient experience also important. And they are trying to do the same thing as the government and help what you just said, directly leverage practice economics to indirectly make total cost of care more important to the physician. So they're not gonna sit there with lots of models in front of them while they're taking care of a patient to understand what course of therapy is gonna be ultimately more expensive or not while they have some ideas, but they do understand that if they follow certain pathways or if they hit certain clinical goals that they will indirectly support cost management while they're trying to take care of their patients. Right, so I think it's important to note that this is a clear difference between providers and payers. And, and honestly, I've, we've been around payer world long enough that we, we know that payers are not disinterested in quality that is important to them. They certainly don't want to pay for low quality, but table stakes for quality of care in payer world is good enough. It is not ultimate. So when you, you see our chart looking at relative uh, weighting of priorities between payers and providers, what you see is the payers will, naturally enough, assign a very, very high weight to cost of care and a moderate weight to quality, whereas the doctors will assign a very tiny weight to cost of care and a much higher weight to quality. And what 
really, again, the goals of value-based care should be is to not necessarily diminish or dilute the provider's focus on quality of care and delivering the best quality of cancer care they can, trying to achieve the best possible outcome for their patients. But it does mean they want to, the payers want this to be done in the context of total cost of care. So picking a cost-effective treatment, not necessarily spending an extra $100,000 on treatments that may uh, not extend life more than a week or two. Uh, it's really some of the basic you know, blocking and tackling of that sort that I think the value-based care is focusing on right now in the oncology world. And Lane, tell us more about your thoughts on what these programs, specifically in oncology, are trying to target. Which costs are they really trying to manage? Well, we know that the biggest cost drivers in oncology at this point continue to be, if you look at the total cost of a, a treatment, not just a six-month episode like um, Oncology Care Model did, but if you look at the total cost of care, we know that facility costs uh, for hospital time, OR time, surgeries, radiology, um, radiation oncology and all that are still probably the account for the majority of the spend, but cancer drugs are also right up there now. We cannot ignore the fact that once, particularly once you get into uh, metastatic you know, situations where surgery is no longer possible, doctors are typically confronted with two options, one of which will be a therapy based upon drugs or radiation therapy. And at that point where drugs are being used, we know the cost can become, of course, very, very high. So this is where I think we see a lot of the conflict out there right now. We have not heard about payers arguing about whether or not a surgical resection is necessary for a stage one, stage two, or stage three patient, where we hear most of the conflict out there in the marketplace right now in our discussion with providers is really more around whether or not a particular chemotherapeutic or targeted therapy should be used with the patient. So that's where we start seeing things like prior authorization, denials, and formularies with payers or pathways with payers coming into being and trying to guide the doctors to what the payers believe is a good quality product that will deliver a good quality outcome for the patient, but which may result in a little bit lower spending than otherwise might be the case. You know, I thought it was also interesting when we heard about how the proportion of drug spend is likely to shift for two reasons. One, the increasing use of combination regimens, for example, and also as institutions start to do a better job at keeping patients out of the ER and thus the hospital for things like side effect management, the, that, that, that slice of the pie for drugs again will increase. So it will become a bigger and bigger target over time. More than likely, yes. We certainly know that most of the advances, I, I know a radiation oncologist will argue with me on this, uh, but from what we have seen, the majority of the advances in survival for cancer patients, particularly metastatic patients, has come through increased effectiveness of the drug therapy. So as you mentioned before, most of the activity in value-based care is on the primary care side. And a lot of players have really popped up as trying to go after value-based care models to be successful as a, as a let's say, a new business model, if you will. Not necessarily new, but um, the way they're developing it is. And so, Lee, which are the, some of the, the larger groups that you think stand out for value-based care? Well, we know that the key players in this really are tied in. Well, not all the key players. Many of the key players are tied in with the vertical payers. So we know Optum, of course, is very large in this. They have very large provider networks. Humana has been working with their CenterWell and Kaviva uh, organizations, building that out through 
billions of dollars in funding from Welsh Carson venture capital private equity firm. Uh, Caremore, other organizations like that, they're aligned with the vertical payers. We know are definitely making inroads in this primary care space. There are also some independents still out there, or people who are at least as of this date still independent. Oak Street Health, One Medical, Cano Health, Chen Med, Village MD. Uh, maybe not perfectly independent. You know, they have deep ties to one of the vertical payers, uh, but they still function, you know, legally anyway as independent. Now, I think what is really interesting though is to see the impact that value-based care initiatives can have on some of these organizations. We know, for instance, Oak Street and Village MD and you know the long-standing heritage provider networks down in Southern California are really set up to go at risk. Their, their whole idea is pulling patients together into a pool, managing them efficiently, and saving money in the process, and then sharing in those savings with the ultimate payers. Some of the other organizations, one medical being at the right at the top of that list, though, didn't really necessarily get into value-based care to begin with. They were more of a concierge medicine play. So while they have a substantial number of patients, they decided to get into value-based care and Medicare risk last year and bought Iora. What was fascinating to see happen here was that they went from being a model based upon high service quality, you know, sort of the concierge, lightweight concierge medicine model where you're getting fees from employers and patients for some extra you know, I guess, freedom and independence, uh, to a model where now their number one revenue source actually is payments for Medicare risk. So they have switched overnight through this acquisition from being a very sort of the Nordstrom's or Neiman Marcus of healthcare to now being a lot more like, let's say, Target or uh, something of that sort, where now their number one source of revenue is suddenly capitation payments for Medicare, which of course means they're going to be managing those patients rather differently than they're trying to manage the concierge patients. So we, it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out, particularly if the deal does close with Amazon. For sure. We do know that there is a small number of providers in oncology who are focusing on value-based care too. And you want to be careful here when you think about who's actually the provider versus the intermediary or yet another middleman, as I affectionately refer to them. In the provider world, we know there's the Oncology Institute, that is trying to grow across the country. We know OptumCare is certainly going into oncology in select markets around the country through various different approaches. And we're seeing some very interesting tie-ups. You'll probably see a case study from us this year looking at one of those tie-ups up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, U.S. oncology is positioned for this. They were very clear when Oncology Care Model came out that this was an opportunity and not all their practices engaged in it, but certainly all of them took a hard look at it. Uh, same is true of one oncology. Everyone's applied for the EOM, but we'll see how many actually go forward with it. So you do have a number of these more sophisticated practices out there with substantial you know, financial resources and good management infrastructure who are really taking a hard look at value-based oncology and asking themselves you know, how they can actually get involved in this, where they can deliver high-quality care and benefit from it financially. There's also a growing world for some reason, intermediaries or middlemen seem to repopulate faster than anything else uh, out there who are getting in between the, the payers and the patients and the providers. Some of these are outfits that do pathway programs and management, uh, New Century Health or OncoHealth or some of the outfits of that sort that do oncology benefit management, for instance, working for the payers or intermediaries. They sort of are playing a role in value-based care too by trying to drive a pathway program or trying to drive physicians towards uh, using 
less costly alternatives wherever possible. There's also a, a sort of a new species of intermediary, Carum Health and Transcarent may be the most high profile of those, where they're trying to develop new ways of paying for oncology, where they go off and do a case study or some sort of a center of excellence arrangement, and they get paid by the employer or the, the insurance company for making these arrangements and saving money. Now, at the end of the day, remember, every time Carum or Transcarent is making money, the odds are that's going to be coming out of the provider's pocket. So uh, they're either trying to buy in bulk on the provider market, you know, or they're hoping that the insurance company is willing to dip into its uh, pocket to pay for their services. But one way or another, these folks are getting paid and they're not delivering care. This brings us to the end of part one of the February 2023 HMP Market Access Insights podcast on value-based cancer care among private payers. Thanks for listening. We hope you captured significant value from the discussion and are interested in continuing on to part two, where we dig into how prevalent DBC is in primary and cancer care, private payer value-based care, activity specifically in oncology, and ideas on how biopharmaceutical manufacturers might adjust to shifting customer interest because of value-based care. Thanks again, and until next time, we wish you great access success.